0: You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast, hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner,
1: caretaker, or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest.
2: Welcome to the Let's Talk Strata podcast. We have here today a very special guest. Dr. Gary Bugden. Gary is the principal of Bugden Legal and specializes in body corporate legal practice in Brisbane. He's a former partner of Mallison's Stephen Jark, now King and Wood Mallison's, and a longtime author of CCH Walters Kluwer, who published three loose-leaf services and four books that he wrote. Gary has specialised in strata and community titles for over 40 years, and during that time he has advised on the title, subdivision, and management structuring of large and complex developments, both in Australia and overseas. Australian projects include Sanctuary Cove Gold Coast, South Bank Brisbane. South Bank Melbourne, King Street Wharf Sydney and Bangaroo Sydney. Overseas projects, the world's tallest building, Burj Khalifa in Dubai and a lot of others. Gary is well qualified to speak about challenges of developing large-scale sustainable real estate projects and uh, again a very great uh, pleasure to have you on board Gary. Um, Now in terms of uh, your work in Strata, you have a very diverse background you've got a very in-depth experience in strata in all facets now how and when did you get involved in this type of work i always find this an interesting question
1: Mm. well mark um i first started to specialize in strata in the around about 1973 Towards the end of the 1970s, I had, uh, and I was in Sydney at the time, I had developed quite a substantial strata practice, but it was essentially advice and management and dispute related. Um, I really didn't know anything about property development, Mm. and um, at that point, the... There was a very large project built at the southern end of Hyde Park in Sydney called the Connaught, and it was a joint venture between the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association, Mm. and the Hong Kong Land Company. Interesting. And they built this project. It comprised um, the YWCA new headquarters, a shopping centre, and a residential tower so they built it together and once they'd finished the building they then set about to subdivide it and found that they couldn't subdivide it so they'd sold something like 200 units and they couldn't settle the sales so they came to me and said can i help can i find a solution and uh, i spent uh, quite a bit of time worked out a solution we got barrister's opinions to make sure that it was going to work discussed it with the Titles Office and then it took 12 months to implement it mm. but eventually we solved the problem wow. and that really kick started my development career
0: nice.
1: because shortly after that there were two similar problems, one at Bondi Junction right. called um, Eastgate Gardens and the other was uh, Edgecliff um, Railway Station project. Mm. So from those three projects I basically launched a career in and advising property developers.
2: Wow. And you've seen a lot of changes in strata, not just in Queensland, but Australia wide. It's really been um, something that has developed from a corporate uh, scheme, uh, a corporate uh, model, and then it expanded out with the legislation. How do you see the development uh, through your, your career so far?
1: Well, certainly um, back in the 1960s, or the late 50s, early 60s, um, company title was really the way Mm -hmm. (coughs) home unit um, ownership went. Um, The introduction of strata titles in 1961 in New South Wales was complete game changer. Mm -hmm. The next big thing happened in the late 70s, early 80s, when, from a town planning point of view, it became common to want to have, say, shops on the ground floor and residential units Mm. above. And what that did, that introduced that mixed use complexity. And that then required the legislation to be substantially upgraded, required new mechanisms, and eventually as the projects got more complicated, the mechanisms got more complicated. Mm. And then we started to see the volumetric subdivisions and also the building management statements and and those complicated arrangements that we see or that are really fairly common these days
2: yeah so um australia's been a very uh, leading force in um, strata titling hasn't it
1: it has yes in fact um it's fair to say that uh strata titles is one of the um sort of more famous exports that australia has uh, been responsible for in the legal sector it's uh, it, it has been taken up in numerous countries around the world mm-hmm. and um uh it certainly is regarded very highly as a a, a model mm-hmm. for adoption
2: and you've done some consulting overseas what's been your experience about how that model has um been implemented and perhaps um morphed into into their own uh, situation there
1: Well, you know, overseas work is fundamentally different to, say, law reform and and developing laws in Australia because you need to accommodate cultural and political differences. Like The first work I did was in Vietnam in the early 90s now. Mm. Vietnam is a communist country Mm. and of course they've got the communist system, they don't recognise private ownership, Mm. Um, so trying to put laws in place in Vietnam is a fundamentally different Mm. proposition to putting laws in place, say in New South Wales or Queensland and then when you move into say the Middle East, where I've done a fair bit of work in numerous countries in the Middle East you've got cultural differences there you've Mm. got the the overlay of uh, Sharia law yeah. and uh, Sharia civil law, and the implications of that from the point of view of property ownership and inheritance, mm. and so on. Mm. So, you've really got to navigate um, the the political and cultural differences, and politically, it's different too. Like, if you're doing a job for an Australian government, you've got to deal with this creature called a parliament, yeah, <laughs> and uh, you've got ministers and all, all of those sort of politics. Yeah, when you're working, say, in the Middle East, you've got one person that can make all the decisions, yeah, but. That person's usually got a very large family yeah. and the family have got business interests and they're all talking to him. So your, pol- your politics are there, but they're a different type of politics.
2: Yeah. It's fascinating to see how those structures are put in place and the dynamics that you need to work with to get a strata-type scheme working overseas. And certainly in, um, in Dubai, you've done a lot of work. Mm. And the, the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, mm. Uh, extremely complicated. Um, How did you navigate the complexities there?
1: Well the first thing was to make sure the laws were appropriate Um, so when we developed the um, what they call the jointly owned property law which is the equivalent to the Australian strata system um, when that law was developed we made sure that um, we could have um, a building management statement and we could have a, a, an airspace mm-hmm. subdivision so that it was possible to di- first of all to divide the building into different um, master lots and then using the jointly owned property law to in turn subdivide those various master lots and mm-hmm. and the result was uh, five uh, separate uh, jointly owned property schemes five separate mm-hmm. bodies corporate but a lot of the commercial components of the building were sort of not under a body corporate structure. Mm. So, um, it, it looked. the structure turned out to be fairly similar to what we use in Australia. Mm. Um, the detail was different, of course, but yeah. uh, the principles were much the same.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just a testament to how, um, you know, fundamentally sound the structures of, of strata law here are. And look, the importance, and talking about structuring, um, what are important uh, principles of good structuring for large complexes, say, here in Queensland?
1: Okay, well, it really depends on the type of project. If you're talking uh, about a sanctuary cave, Mm. the principles and the issues are totally different than if you're talking about... um, uh, say, one of the major city buildings where you've got a mixture of um, retail, residential mm. and um, offices. Yeah. But um, I think the ones that probably are the most challenging are those mixed-use buildings, the, mm. the big complicated buildings that we're starting to see in the city. Mm. Um, and the challenges there are, well, there are three aspects to structuring there's the titling there's the way you subdivide and there's the management structuring. Yeah. And From a titling point of view and from a subdivision point of view it's complicated but um, you know it's really not that significant except to the extent that the way you subdivide tends to drive the management structure that you you end up with. Right. So you need to make the right choices in your subdivision process to Mm. ensure you get the right management structure at the end and the management structure becomes critical for things like control.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, For example, um, commercial owners need an element of control over things like signage and cleaning and so on. And then the other big issue is cost-sharing. If you don't get the cost-sharing right in these Mm -hmm. buildings, it becomes a major area of dispute. So they're the the main things, Mm -hmm. but um, you've really got to try and make sure that your documentation accommodates the needs of each of the particular user groups within the building
2: yeah so you've got your cms's and then you've got the building management statement on top Mm. of it and you've got to have a keen eye on the commerciality of perhaps the commercial clients that are uh, operating particular types of businesses it might be a car park it could be restaurants and all the potential nuisances that come out of that yeah so um do you think it's useful for a developer to, to really um bed down The nature of the clients that are perhaps going to be buying in.
0: Well,
1: it it doesn't matter so much whether you know what what sort of brand of retail that's going to be Mm. there. the important thing is the uses. Yeah. If you yeah. get the uses, if you know what the uses are, you can then make sure your structure accommodates those uses. Mm. Whether it's a Woolworths or a Myers or a, mm-hmm. a Coles, it doesn't really matter yeah. because yeah. they're basically all the same type of use.
2: Yeah. So a restaurant's gonna have differing needs to say, you know, retail clothing stores and car parks, mm. maybe a gym. They're all going to have different sets of problems and challenges and it, those challenges impact on the residential components, don't they?
1: Yep, they do. The, the facilities that you retail, particularly restaurants and that, um, the facilities they need are going to be fundamentally different to what mm. uh, what uh, re, um, residential need. I mean, just to take one example of probably a 100 grease traps, Oh, yes. I mean, you know, restaurants need the grease trap, uh, oh. residential units don't. Hmm. So the cost of cleaning the grease trap, which is not an insignificant cost, oh, yes. um, and maintaining it, that's something that you need to make sure that goes to hmm. not only to the retail, but in fact to the component of the retail, namely the restaurants, that are actually using the grease trap. So, you know, the servicing and the allocation of costs associated with it becomes pretty complicated.
2: And the managing of nuisances that arise from the differing types of retail, like cooking fumes, for example, and accommodating that and making sure that's um, um, managed satisfactorily Um, so it doesn't impact on the the other
1: Yeah, well, I mean, restaurants in themselves, um, you know, if you've got a, an Indian restaurant, for example, mm-hmm. where you've got fairly strong fumes and flavours that yeah. are coming out of it, that potentially could be a problem. Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is that the most contentious use um, are the nightclubs. Yeah, because
0: uh,
1: <laughs> there's nothing like having a nightclub on the ground floor of a of a residential tower, mm. uh, where the nightclub sort of closes at three thirty a.m. in the morning, and everybody then extends their party to the footpath Absolutely. outside. Um, The nightclubs are very challenging when it comes to these types of projects. Yeah,
2: and some might say, well, if you're buying into a residential um, complex that has a nightclub on the bottom, you're kind of almost impliedly um, accepting the noise that impliedly comes with that kind of endeavour, don't you?
1: Well, Mark, all I can say to you is you try and tell the owners that (laughs) after they've they've settled. Um, You know, you're quite right. Um, People... Are supposed to take all that into account mm. as part of their purchase decision. Mm. But the reality is they don't
0: mm.
1: and therefore they're going to be unhappy and that's going to create the problems. And it's the same when it comes to things like um, you buy the penthouse that's got mm. twice the entitlements yeah. of all the other units. And then after 12 months, you realise how much you're paying in levies and you're not really getting much more for it. Mm. So all of a sudden, you complain that uh, the levies are unfair.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, in theory, you knew that when you purchased. It mm. was there in front of you. You should have taken all that into account. Yeah. But the reality is that people um, will still complain.
2: Yeah. So it, looking at structuring again, um, we've talked about mixed use structuring um differing um types of developments require different uh um, measures to control and um, manage obligations what else is involved in these um structuring considerations for a developer do you think because it's about community isn't it
1: yeah look community is something that um is often not focused on by developers Mm -hmm. um you know, some developers are very good at it. Others um, are fairly short-sighted. They mm. basically just want to put the minimum amount of money in as possible and extract the maximum return. Mm. How it all operates after it's finished, um, you know, they really don't care. Mm. Uh, or they don't focus on the fact that it can really affect their brand if it doesn't Absolutely. operate very very yeah. well. Um, but... You know, some developers are focused on not only producing a masterpiece of a building that's in a physical sense, Mm -hmm. but also to produce a building that uh, promotes um, uh, community. Mm -hmm. Now, to do that, the physical features of the building and the facilities within the building are critical. Mm -hmm. Because if you've got a building that um, has got no facilities except a basement car park and an and a lift, um, you're not going to get people who are going to be interacting um, because they're not going to talk to each other in the lift when they travel from the basement Mm. to the second floor. Um, Whereas if on the other hand you've got um, various um, facilities like gymnasiums and theatres and um, barbecue facilities and swimming pools um, and in some cases they even have common laundries and things like that to try and bring people together. You can actually then have a, a functional community where people are genuinely mm-hmm. uh, friends and supportive of each other. Yeah. But some developers uh, are not really interested in that.
2: Yeah. So very much some physical aspects to how the architecture is laid out. Mm. but there's other things aren't there there's how you manage responsibilities and how you um perhaps uh, create that sense of community through um through your cms your use of common property um what other ingredients do you think um are needed
1: oh look i i i think the way, the type of structure you choose is important in order to make sure that I call it sustainable, make sure the community is sustainable. And I'm not talking about climate, mm. I'm talking, uh, or the environment, I'm talking about sustainability in the broader sense.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, to make sure the building is sustainable, you need to make sure you've got the right structure. Now, there's a huge choice of structures, even in a, a mixed-use project uh, mm. there's probably five different ways you could choose to structure that project mm. so you've got to pick the structure that's most suitable for the building mm. and for the type of uses within the building um, and then once you've chosen the structure the next major area where you can things can go wrong is the documentation
0: yeah
1: and I've got to say because um, I get to to sort of have to deal with a lot of the problems mm. um, because of the nature of our practice, we're not only acting for developers, but we're also acting, mm. in a lot of cases, restructuring some of these schemes. But, you know, when you get the problems occurring and you, you pull out the documentation, and the documentation is vague, um, it, it's quite clear that whoever drafted it really didn't know mm. what they were doing, mm. it just makes the whole thing so much more difficult.
0: Yeah.
1: So quality of documentation is very important.
2: Yeah, so if we take a step back to structuring, for those listening, what do you mean by structuring?
1: Okay, well, structuring is, um, uh, as I said before, it's really um, title, subdivision and management. Mm. Now, title in most cases is just a sort of freehold title um, using, um, in Queensland, the um, BCCM Act, the Body Corporate Community Management Act. Now, um, then there's how you're going to subdivide it. Are you going to, just say for argument's sake you've got a a building with a hotel, uh, residential tower and a shopping centre. Now, um, for example, you could put um, a body corporate over the whole structure Mm. and then you could put a body corporate over the residential tower. Um, and possibly, um, depending on the shopping centre, you might even put a body corporate over the shopping Mm. centre. Or you could do a volumetric subdivision and then just have no body corporate over the volumetric subdivision, just have a building management statement, Mm. and then you just take the residential tower and put a body corporate over the residential tower. Now, you know, that's two examples of of a number of ways you could structure that. Now... What you've got to do, you've got to look at how you want the project to be managed going forward because the way you subdivide it and the subdivision plans you use will determine what sort of management structure you end Mm. up with. So you've really got to start at the the end and say, okay, this is how I want this particular project to function. Mm. I want the residential to be able to manage themselves. I want the entire building to be able to be separately managed. I want the commercial people to have a degree of autonomy. I want the hotel to be able to operate without Mm. being interfered with. And therefore, uh, to do that, I need this sort of structure. And then having arrived at that structure, I now need to achieve that by having this type of subdivision. Mm. Now the titling, um, what comes into play with the titling are things like easements, covenants, uh, any restrictions that you mm. want to put on. They're all sort of title issues and they all yeah. help to go to create that end environment that you're looking for.
2: Yeah, and you need to determine how much of those ingredients you need to have in every portion of that, uh, that pie, if you like, yep. and um, that, that plays a role in determining obligations. Of the owners that eventually buy in
0: Mm. to
2: that and also the cost Mm. who pays for what and that creates a a certain degree of complexity to the body corporate manager I guess
1: it does yeah it does and once again you know there's there's some skills and expertise needed to set these structures up Mm. there's also a lot of skills needed to actually manage them yeah and unfortunately um, there are some body corporate managers that don't really understand particularly building management statements Mm. but I mean you know let's take as an example a complicated building where you've got a building management statement and you've got say um, well well, let's take a simple one and say there's 20 services and pieces of equipment that are shared
0: Mm.
1: so you've got a list of 20 items well in order to manage that you effectively need to have a budget for each item you do. Mm-hmm. and when you raise a levy you basically got to make sure that the proportion of that levy goes to that particular item and then when you pay an invoice you've got to work out which item that that invoice needs to be debited against yeah. and i mean that's a massive task it is and the more complicated the building the more difficult the task yeah. so and it's interesting that there's one project that I had an involvement with where um, this was after it was built um, where the body corporate manager, um, uh, it was a, a mixed use between two residential buildings and um, some shops. Mm. And what the the body corporate manager that was consulting did, he said, oh, look, let's just um, divide it up... Um, 25 2550 um so that there was no allocation among the various services mm. there was just this this sort of bucket full of expenses mm. that was divided up by yeah. 25 2550 and um, he did it because it made it a lot easier for mm. him to manage the building yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but after the scheme had been going a couple of years, they got a quantity surveyor in to do an analysis of all the expenses, and it turned out that um, the residential, um, instead of paying 25, should have been paying 65. Yeah. And of course, what that did, that had a huge impact on the outgoings for the shops. Mm-hmm which then, because as you know, shops are valued based on return, yeah. because the outgoings reduced, the return increased, the value of the shops went up just now, by adju- making that adjustment.
2: It's such a critical decision, yep, isn't it? It is. About the management yep. um, and implementation of yep. that. Now, you've got a lot of experience in actually um, developing systems to manage these types of projects and, indeed, mm. the simpler ones too. How did you find um, the challenges... In developing a system that could accommodate that kind of com- complexity.
1: Look, I'm not sure that there is um, the definitive system for that mm. that management at this stage. Um, I certainly was involved in designing one mm. um, that is sort of under construction, if I can use that term. Yeah. Um, but um, look, it's really not that complicated from a, 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 an accounting point of view, yeah. and in the case of say. Um, the building management statement once you get the programming done for one of those Mm. services it's the same programming for everyone Mm. and um, it's really designing it's not that hard I think Mm. it's probably more challenging if you had to program it but I've never sort of uh, turned my mind to that.
2: Mm. And look to have those systems in place make a management uh, task of a complex building a lot easier don't they True. Yeah. yeah and actually knowing how to use it which comes back to the skill level of the manager again and yep. um, and their ability to navigate the technology yeah as well
1: and people that have um, off the shelf technology mm-hmm. um, and there's a number of systems that are available all of them have got their goods points and their bad points but um, if you've got the uh, an off-the-shelf um, management system, strata management system, it, it makes it much easier for you to be compliant. Mm. If you develop your own system or you try and use spreadsheets and that, mm. that's where you tend to run into trouble as yeah. a manager because um, you're improvising and you probably don't uh, put the attention into yeah. compliance That some of the um, professional developers uh, put their
0: attention, and there's so
2: much compliance to look after. Sure, um, not only from an accounting, but from a from a maintenance perspective, and a lot of these systems um, take care of globally all of that, and even meeting procedure and and that kind of thing. That's correct. Um, In terms of um, typically, what kind of consultants do you find? are involved and should be involved in the structuring team for a development like the ones you talked about?
1: Okay well once again that depends a bit on the project but Mm. if you're looking at a city mixed-use project then typically involved will be um, your surveyor, well first of all it's headed up usually by the project manager they're they're usually (laughs) the ones that coordinate it and then you've got a surveyor, you'd have a lawyer you'd have a body corporate manager and then um, at various points you have to bring in technical consultants like engineers, um, hydraulic engineers, electrical engineers, um, fire safety people. Um, They're really necessary in order to help you identify exactly what services are there, how they're to be maintained, whether they can be maintained separately, Mm -hmm. um, and then how you would allocate the costs. Um, Now if on the other hand you're talking (laughs) of a resort project, well then you've got all of those people but in addition to that you'd have a planner who'd be involved in the master planning of the project um, and then you'd also probably have some hospitality people who Mm. would be keeping an eye on Uh, the way you structure it and what impact that might have from a hospitality point of view Mm. and you know that boils down to things like okay you've got a golf course, you've got a hotel, you've got a residential community, Uh, who gets preferential rights to use the golf course? Is it somebody that's paying Mm. $600 a night at the hotel or is it somebody that's paying levies to a body corporate who live there? Mm. And all of those issues need to be sort of looked at pretty carefully to make sure don't build problems into the project
2: yeah and and it's also about tying those consultants together and um, getting them to work together Mm. at particular points in time producing documentation the advice ultimately the the developers the one that's going to be having to analyze all of this information Mm. Um, you've stepped into those kinds of roles of consultancy? How did you find juggling the different um, parties um, in a large-scale project?
1: Look, if you're just looking at um, the development phase, um, in the past, it hasn't been a particularly difficult thing. It's getting more difficult. And let me give you an example why it's getting more difficult. Um, We'll take an example of a major project that's underway in Sydney at the moment. Um, It's got multiple towers, Uh, it's got um, a mixture of residential, um, offices, hotel, um, shopping centre, car park. I mean, it is a really complicated project. It's made even more complicated by the fact that it's an environmentally sustainable project. So they have. a lot of facilities in there, like all of the water, wastewater is all treated and recirculated. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've got cogeneration plant. Um, So from an operational point of view, the building is very complicated. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, managing that from a development point of view, you've got a big team to put together. But in the case of this particular project, it was even more complicated Mm -hmm. because every major law firm in Australia had a role in the project right. because the developer had pre-sold office towers and also it was being done on land that was belonged to the government, so the government were in there with their lawyers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody who purchased an office tower had their lawyers. The developer had their lawyers. <laughs> And not only the lawyers, but their own consultants as well. Mm. And of course, everybody had their own ideas. They're all sort of negotiating and Mm. signing contracts. Um, So the coordination process Mm. not only involved working out how to do the project and how to structure the project, but also coordinating all of these law firms Mm. to make sure that uh, they were all... Um, sort of on board as far as the way it yeah. was all going to be structured. And I think that's an example of how complicated projects are becoming. Yeah, It's not simply a matter of developing a project and then selling it. Mm. Um, the pre-selling of not only units, residential units, but also major commercial components is creating a lot of complexity at that mm. planning and structuring stage.
2: Yeah so you get to this um, master planning phase and preparation knowing about the the different parties that are going to be coming into the development and and really knowing how to manage them at different points in time because Mm. when you get to the the construction phase it's different to implementing say the, the the CMS once it's registered with mm. the titles office mm. and then and then moving forwards um, you're, you're starting to uh, work with the, uh, the commercial lot owners and mm. and, and how act, their business is actually operating in practice. Mm. Mm. Um, so in terms of your consultancy um, do you find it easy to start from the beginning and work right the way through a project or do you step in at critical moments
0: well,
1: I mean, it would certainly be the best to be involved up front and uh, have some control over the structuring process, but uh, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we act for a developer uh, on the whole project, mm-hmm. so you do get the opportunity of doing all the structuring and coordinating the team. Um, in other cases, uh, uh, Other law firms will often bring us in as a consultant Mm. um, and in some cases we even act for the other law firm rather than for the developer, Mm. uh, just helping with um, final decision making and documentation and that. Mm. Um, Sometimes the developers will bring us in, like um, in this particular project in Sydney, our role was to coordinate all the lawyers. Um, which uh, is quite a challenging yeah. role.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Talking about lawyers, what kind of skills do they need to be effective in this kind of work? Because it's very specialised work, mm. uh, very different to your normal commercial transactions. You need to know a lot of legislation, particular to how strata's work and mm. impact on strata. Mm. What kind of skills do you think they need to have?
1: Look, I mean obviously they need all the legal skills that one would expect to, uh, would be involved in structuring the projects, knowing the legislation, knowing what the options are, what the pros and cons of the various options are. Um, I think there's there's a, a need to understand the um, market dynamics. Mm. Um, For example, the reason why you choose a volumetric subdivision um, and keep, say, a shopping centre out of the body corporate structure is because if you put the shopping centre in the body corporate structure, you immediately devalue the shopping centre. And the reason why is because institutional investors won't buy that shopping centre, and therefore your market for the shopping centre is diminished, you've got additional overheads and that uh, additional complexities mm. um, so y- you know I've heard the figure of you know a 15 to 18 percent reduction in yeah. value yeah. Now, if you've got something worth a hundred million dollars that's 18 million dollars mm. off the value just because of the structure yeah so you know understanding the dynamics of the market is important mm. But the other thing that I think is very important from a lawyer's point of view involved in structuring is understanding buildings. I mean, the depending on the structure that you use and, and how thorough you want to be, um, I mean, the amount of time I spend crawling through buildings with surveyors mm. and um, uh, consultants like engineers and electrical yeah. people and that, in order to get an understanding of how that building's going to operate if mm. you don't understand how that building's going to operate um, then you're going to miss things mm. that um, uh, that should be included in your legal documentation yeah. and take two examples the, the two things that are commonly missed is subsoil drainage systems mm. I mean you can walk through a major building and you can't see the subsoil draining system but it has to be maintained. Mm. And the other thing is your uh, stair pressurisation units, they're stuck up the top but they actually um, pressurise the stairs Mm. that might run through three parts of the use areas. So I think really understanding Mm. complicated buildings is a, a very important skill. Mm-hmm. for lawyers involved in structuring mm-hmm. and you can usually tell how skilled the lawyer is in the building by the documents they produce. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a complicated project and the list of shared services is half a page, you know straight away that lawyer didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got uh, 50 or 100 pages, and that there are projects that I've done where the shared services have gone into, you know, 30, 50, 60 pages. Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite clear that, that that thing has been designed specifically for that building.
2: Yeah. How does a lawyer wanting to get into this area of work acquire that, that kind of skill?
1: Well, I suppose the best way to acquire it would be working with somebody that um, you know, that's doing that sort of work, mm. um, and of course, that's um, one of the benefits of working for, say, a large firm that specialises in mm. in doing these complicated projects. Um, but at the end of the day, it's experience is something that you have to learn. It, it's it's something you acquire mm. um, by experience. That's right, <laughs> and. Um, you've really got to sort of put yourself with people that um, can sort of teach you.
0: Mm.
2: And, of course, developers need to be savvy about these things too. We've talked about the lawyers. What about the developers? What kind of skills do they need to have and what considerations do they need to have at the forefront of their mind? We've talked about community. Yes. You've talked about infrastructure. They've got to get input from professionals like engineers and surveyors, what's your experience with um, developers getting up to speed with creating sustainable
1: communities like that? Look, it depends on the developer obviously. Mm. Some people are actually quite focused on um, on outcomes and um, others are more focused on the, um, uh, the development process, you know, mm. uh, designing, getting your approvals, Um, project Mm. management, marketing, all that side of things. And all that has to be done and it has to be done efficiently, otherwise you won't make any money out of the project. But um, Look, I think a developer needs to appreciate the importance of producing a project that's going to function properly. Mm. Um, And let me take an example of a project where um, it was a large developer who um, built this project and they put in place a management agreement, a caretaking agreement that was pretty dodgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they'd relied on the advice of somebody they'd receive uh, for they'd receive from somebody. And um, uh, the chief executive of this company decided to buy a unit in this building. And about 12 months after he bought it, he moved on to another job and um, about two years after that I got a phone call from him mm-hmm. saying, oh, I'm in more trouble than Speed Gordon here. He said, this the agreement, <laughs> he said, and I'm getting the blame for it. <laughs> he said, we didn't look far enough ahead to see what the problems were going to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, I felt sorry for this guy because he was just the CEO He, he really didn't have anything to do with the project or the decisions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But he was copying the flack and yeah. um, and, his, and his old company was copying the flak. And that's where I think developers need to have a clear um, understanding of, of what some of their decisions can mean for people to buy into their projects. Mm-hmm. And also they need to... Um, to be a little bit focused on the quality of some of the consulting advice advice they receive. And let me take an example, a lot of developers, uh, I think a lot, I can say a lot, um, engage body corporate managers to provide their development, uh, their structuring advice. And the body corporate manager uh, provides the advice free of charge Mm -hmm. on the understanding that they get appointed as the manager for the building. For
2: three years.
1: For three years. Yeah. Now, you know, to me, what that tells me is if I'm getting free advice, is it the best advice I exactly. can get? Um whereas they they're not looking past the fact that oh we can get all this structuring advice mm-hmm. um and not pay for it. Mm-hmm instead of going to somebody like bugdon and paying him to provide the advice so you know i I often wonder at times whether there's a bit of a short-sightedness there on the Mm. part of some developers
2: yeah yeah well it it seems that there's a a relationship that gets developed but um like you say the 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 long-term decisions Mm. aren't always within the scope of the the knowledge of the manager it would yep. be it would yep. be extraordinary, I think, for someone who's um, in the management role to have that additional high-level experience mm. in um, developing structured uh, projects that are very complicated.
1: I think that's right. Yep. I think that the manager actually plays a very important role in terms of the budgeting, uh, the bylaws, um, the operational aspects of the building. Um, Uh, and even providing input into um, uh, how the building's going to be managed. Mm. But in terms of the actual structuring, Structuring. they really don't have the experience Mm. and they don't put the time in. Mm. I mean, you don't get them sort of poking around in the building with the surveyor identifying whether you need easements and if so, what Mm. ones you need and all that sort of thing. Mm. They probably don't even know what an easement means, you know. So, um, yeah, I I think um, developers need to perhaps focus a little bit more on um, uh, some of their, uh, you know, what they expect of some of their consultants.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah and bring on the right people at mm. the right time yeah. and expect that that's going to cost as well but it's part of transaction cost isn't it the whole scheme it of things. is
1: yeah it The whole scheme is and um you know how do you put a price on it if the if the project turns out to be a failure i mean this there's, yeah. there's projects we're working on at the moment where we're restructuring the projects mm-hmm. and in in, in th- there's three of them and in each case there's a very large shopping center involved And the shopping centre, in each case, is a lot within the body corporate. Mm. Now, those three projects are in disarray Mm. because of the way they were structured. Um, Now... You know, if I was the developer of one of those projects, I'd be mortified.
2: It's almost but like you need to dissociate
1: exactly. certain aspects yeah.
2: of it, and, yeah. and then get them registered yeah. in the way that they should have been yep. at the beginning. Yep. Yeah, and and that's a costly
1: step down the track, isn't it? Well, it's not only costly, but it's very difficult because you need, um, always you will need a, a resolution without dissent oh, that's right. and um, interestingly we had one go to a vote here within the last uh, couple of weeks and um, there was one vote against the restructure right. and <clears throat> I said to the body corporate manager give them a call and find out why mm. they voted against mm. it. Do you know why they voted against it? Mm. Because they don't like the owner of the shopping centre.
2: Right." i'm sure you've you've dealt with things like this and having run you know applications at the commissioner's office um to overturn Mm. dissenting votes um it's difficult um if it hasn't been managed properly at the beginning uh, if the documentation isn't right going out to lot owners but to avoid all of this structuring it properly is Mm. the best policy at the beginning isn't it it is and to pay the cost Mm. To get that done right at the beginning yep. is is crucial. Yep. Um, so, you've talked about restructuring. That's obviously one of the problems that emanates from poor structuring. What other things do you find you need to go back and fix at the end?
1: Look, sometimes it's as simple as um, as uh, redoing bylaws. And mm. then, um, for for example, there was one. Um, master plan community that had um, very comprehensive um, uh, architectural landscape code Um, and they had provisions in that code for approval for work on land within the scheme Mm -hmm. Um, but they set up an external architectural review committee um, who made decisions and gave approvals on behalf of the body corporate well, legally, it wasn't possible to delegate that function right. to that outside committee. So uh, the whole thing became dysfunctional. People mm. started to just ignore it yeah. because the, the argument was that the bylaws, the, the code couldn't operate. So um, it was just simply a matter then of basically restructuring the uh, architectural review committee and making sure it was a a body corporate decision, with consultants providing input, um, and then getting the owners to vote in favour of it, and and it was all fixed. So that's uh, the simple end of the thing. Um, The other end, I mean, in the case of your shopping centre that's part of the body corporate, the solution there is that you've got to do a volumetric subdivision you've got to extract the um, shopping centre from the scheme Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got to set up a building management statement and um, uh, all of that requires council approval. There's inevitably problems associated with Mm -hmm. services Mm -hmm. like the water is probably not separately um, metered for For the the shopping centre, there may be electrical things that need Mm -hmm. to be changed Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, so you've got a lot of physical changes you need to make you've got all the surveying and title changes, and then you've got to make sure you get your building management statement right. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you've, you have got people who are actually very closely scrutinising mm-hmm. the content. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, and at the end of the day, you need everybody to sign off on it. Mm. So it's um, it's a bit challenging. Yeah. And,
2: and even things like um, weather, in in a more simpler scheme whether you register it under a standard format or building format um, how you structure your lot entitlements um, all of those things can typically play a role in Mm. in complexities Mm. down the track that need to be rectified and i've certainly seen a building where um, you know the the lot entitlements were the same for a four-bedroom and a Mm. one-bedroom a lot Um, and that creates dispute and disharmony in the community
1: and another thing that that can often happen is where you've got a um, community title scheme like it might be say townhouse type development Mm. where you're going to build it in two stages and the developer uses a standard format plan with a body corporate for stage one and then for stage two they use a building format plan. So you've got everybody under the one body corporate but you've got some people whose roofs are common property and yeah. they're not responsible for them, and you've got other people whose roofs are part of the lot and they have to pay for them.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, to solve that, you've got to do a re-subdivision mm. in order to um, make the building format lots um, standard format lots, mm. and to do that, you've got to get the consent of all the mortgagees mm. and... You know the the process is lengthy, yeah. complicated, and very expensive. Yeah, all because of the decision to use a different format plan on stage two. Yeah. Now that's a that was a fundamental decision mm. that should never have been made.
2: Exactly. Um, it comes down to the consultants then, doesn't yeah, it? It does. Yeah. yeah. And that creates havoc when it comes to determining how your lot entitlements are going to be structured because you've got totally different obligations and the costs can be immense if it's you know if you've got a you know the external repaint of a building can be quite significant
1: and in the case of that scheme all the lot entitlements were virtually the same right so (laughs) you got your roof maintained but you didn't pay any more than the guy who was maintaining yeah his own roof
2: yeah yeah incredible so um In terms of solving these problems, um, obviously it requires the parties to identify the problems there. And that usually comes out of dispute. And having had Chris Irons in um, a couple of times, Mm you know, his office is dealing with escalated uh, numbers of disputes every year. Mm -hmm. Um, Where's the forum for managing disputes of this nature, do you think?
1: Well, it depends on what the dispute is. If if there is a building management statement in place and it's been poorly drafted, then there may be a dispute resolution mechanism within the building management statement. Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't all contain that. No, but they don't. Um, but there should be there. <laughs> um, if, for example, it's um, a, a building in Southbank. Um, where you're dealing under the leasehold system at mm. South Bank, there are dispute resolution provisions um, mm. that you could um, access there, but they're specific to that particular area. Yeah, under that um, legislation. Yeah, and if um, if it's just a, a normal uh, body corporate and community management scheme, um, depending on the dispute. It may be like, for example, if you're trying to restructure and you need a unanimous, uh, sorry, a resolution without Mm. dissent, and you've got two people voted against it, you could then go to the commissioner under Chapter Six of the Act to seek an order pushing the motion through. Um, But there may be other disputes that hmm. are not within the Commissioner's jurisdiction and ultimately, they may even have to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, they
2: become so, civil yeah, matters, don't exactly. they? Exactly.
1: So, yeah, um, yeah it, it's unfortunate that you really can't make a decision on how you resolve the thing until you know what type of dispute it is and, and what jurisdiction it falls in. And it
2: can be multifaceted as well. well that's the other dispute. problem, yeah. Yeah, so you might have yeah. competing jurisdictions yep. for different yeah. And
1: elements. you quite often get that with caretaker disputes. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> you've got a dispute involving, say, the validity of something that the body corporate did, mm-hmm. which is clearly a Chapter 6 matter. Yeah. And then that that question then arises, or is relevant to um, the ability to um, refuse a consent mm-hmm. on an assignment or to terminate mm-hmm. a, an agreement, which is a key problem.
2: Yeah, they, so, they become contractual yeah, then, don't yeah, they? Yeah. that's right. Yeah, so um, I guess for a body corporate, it's, it's a matter of analysing, okay, well, which part of the dispute we need to take to this jurisdiction, which part goes there, yes. um, determining the cost implications for each element of it, and maybe um, early preventative dispute resolution processes can kick in on the matters that perhaps can be resolved yeah. uh, and then taking the rest of it uh, to the um, say, as a civil matter, yeah. Um uh, yeah. Um, do you deal much with the dispute side of things?
1: Um, certainly the firm does. We mm-hmm. deal, We have a lot of disputes. We've got uh, disputes um, uh, before the Commissioner. Um, we've got a lot of QCAT matters, and we've also at the moment got quite a number of Supreme Court matters, mm-hmm. um, mainly involving disputes over development-type issues mm-hmm. where... Um, they really don't come, they're not part of the body corporate issues. They're they're more a sort of Supreme Court type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, yeah, so we we do a whole range of disputes, anything from recovering an overdue living (laughs) (laughs) to to a major development-related dispute.
2: Yeah. What kinds of factors sway success in, say, a developer issue, do you think? and that's a very broad question but looking at the types of problems that arise in a development project did you think um, good governance um, from the very outset can really shield the developer from a lot of the the disputes that happen later on
1: yeah look um the developer disputes tend to be um like the serious ones tend to be Disputes uh, between the developer and contractors, and um, sort of outside the body corporate realm, mm. and um, I'm talking
2: about the defects side of okay. things as well.
1: Right. Well, the defects mm. side. Um, um, I mean, defects are a major problem, mm. um, and the. I mean, from the developer's point of view. It depends whether the developer is the actual builder or whether they've engaged a builder and if they've engaged somebody, is that builder still around? Mm. Uh, If the developer was the builder, was it a a special purpose company or is it the main company? Um, Look, most responsible developers and reputable developers will um, resolve their building defects issues. Mm. The problems tend to occur more where um, you've got a a single-purpose company, or you've got building contractor that's actually done the work and Mm -hmm. gone out of business. In those circumstances, you um, um, you find that um, uh, the dispute becomes protracted and Mm -hmm. difficult. Um, But look, I think. The New South Wales approach to dispute, um, to building defect problems I think is probably not a bad approach, mm-hmm. um, in fact interestingly uh, having suggested it I can't <laughs> say it's a bad approach <laughs> but that, <coughs> that's interesting, what what New South Wales does is um, they require the developer to put a mm. percentage of their um, uh, project value yeah. in or to retain it. Um,
2: nice little safeguard there
1: but but it's interesting i did a similar thing in dubai Um, but over there it was possible to just do it because there was a problem with um, building defects Uh, the Mm. government wanted it fixed Mm. Um, and although it was a fairly dramatic solution um, it was accepted by the building industry because you know they know they can't really complain Mm Then I was at a meeting in Sydney with the government group that was formulating the legislation and they said, do I have a magic solution mm-hmm. for building disputes? And I said, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just make the developer withhold 5% of the, um, the purchase, pr- mm-hmm. the value of the property, the project and, and keep it for a couple of years and, and use it's it a to great fix problems. Do you know... They said oh that sounded like a good idea and i said well good luck the development industry will never agree to it yeah. <laughs> but somehow it got through it
2: got through yeah. do you think do you think that could happen here in queensland well
1: i mean uh, the biggest barrier to it happening is the development industry yeah but because they've got it through in new south wales and it seems to be working okay mm. I would have thought it will in fact be followed mm. in most of the other states.
2: Yeah, and we've got law reforms <coughs> coming on the yeah. horizon there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's on the cards, but mm. it probably should be.
1: I think the problems in Queensland haven't been as bad as they were in New South Wales. Mm. Um, Maybe if it gets any worse here, that'll become a problem mm. uh, and that'll sort of uh, become a catalyst for it to, yeah. to a change. But, I mean, there's not much happening in Queensland mm. law reform-wise anyway. So yeah, that's right. I don't think that dispu- um, defects will be a priority.
2: No, no. I'm, well, cladding's a, a good example yeah. of uh, a perhaps a knee-jerk reaction to an issue and bringing sweeping change and uh, compliance for all bodies corporate uh, here in Queensland. Um, Are there any concerns that you have about the current structuring practices moving forwards and and the types of things you'd like to see the industry um, as a global strata industry uh, look at addressing? Mm,
1: Look, I think the biggest concern I've got is um, not using the right consultants to get the solutions right in the first place. Mm. I think that's, um, we've talked about that a little bit, and I think that's a major issue. The other, I think the biggest issue, is the standard of documentation. I mean, when you look at some significant projects um, in Queensland, and you look at the documentation, I mean, some of it is really quite um, quite amateurish, you know? Mm. And, and you compare... I mean, I, we work in different states, but, mm. but if you compare the documentation that's used in New South Wales with the documentation used in Queensland, um, the standards are dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And what that tells me is that either the developer's not putting the money into getting the best product, or the people who are producing the product Mm. are not paying enough attention to what's required. Mm. Or maybe they don't understand what's required. Do
2: you think government has a role to play in ensuring minimum standards for these kinds of things?
1: That's a hard one because um, you'd need to have somebody in government look at projects on a project by project mm. basis and mm. um, I, I'm, I'm really not sure that um, that would be the best solution. Mm. Maybe the best solution would be more along the lines adopted for caretaking agreements and mm. that's to uh, make developers responsible for coming and cleaning up the mess if, mm. um, if there is a mess. Yeah. Um, making sure that what they put in place is going to work. Yeah,
2: and I know um, town planners, uh, you know, council town planners have a role to play to look at the the initial documentation, Mm. but I wonder whether that role could be expanded uh, in really looking at the viability, long-term viability in documentation that goes with with the development, uh, particularly the complex
1: ones. Look, I think it depends on the project. I think mm. for and the skill sets, um, mm. the planners um, are basically concerned with land use, yes, yeah. and um, uh, I'm not sure they're really too involved in the complexities of buildings. Mm. Um, certainly, planners play a much greater role when it comes to uh, master plan communities mm. because. Um, uh the way you lay them out the way they mm. operate the way the different components interrelate to each other yeah. all of that is very much town planning yeah and um, the town planners a critical um, mm. consultant in those types of projects
2: yeah and we're seeing a lot of master plan developments coming up as you know councils are trying to make use of space um perhaps promoting higher density in the inner city um, Mm. areas. Uh, Do you think more master developments are on the cards for Queensland, particularly in the town centres as they redevelop and create higher density?
0: Mm.
1: Look, um, yes, uh, I do think that... um, uh, I'm not so sure about inner city because the sites are usually not big enough to mm. warrant a a, a master plan community as such mm. i mean you do get things like kelvin grove yes. for example that's, where you, that's what came to yeah, mind where that that, that was mm. done as a mm. um, uh, a master planned yeah. uh, exercise but i mean that's a pretty big site yeah. and there aren't too many of those sites around right. but if there if there were some then yes i do think that would be important but it's really the outer areas where we're starting to see the master-planned mm-hmm. communities and um, generally speaking they're not gated communities. Mm. Uh, some of them are gated but uh, gating has never been a major issue in Queensland because mm. it's security wise. Yeah. And, but, and then the other problem that you get with master-planned communities if you look at something like Springfield, mm. it is so large and so complex that the developer couldn't. I mean, they they did it as a master plan community in the sense that they master-planned it and Mm -hmm. they had development lots and all the rest of it. But there's no structure over Springfield. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because the legislation is just too inflexible Mm -hmm. for a project of that size to Mm -hmm. use it. It really had to be done the way it was done Um, simply because of its complexity and even if you look at something like Sanctuary Cove where it's got its own legislation huge project, um, very complicated issues involved Mm. Um, but even with its own Act of Parliament um, it was very very challenging Mm. as a project I mean the changes that had to be made at Sanctuary Cove to settle issues with Mm. owners like at one stage the whole of Harbour One was going to be what was called floating dwelling houses Mm -hmm. and it almost created World War (laughs) Three with um, with the owners around Harbour One and to the extent where at the end the developer decided to abandon the floating dwelling houses. For a developer to subject themselves to a a democratic structure yeah. on top of the planning and political structure, That's huge. Uh, it's a big commitment. <laughs> so yeah. I think Springfield made the right choice in going the way they did.
2: Yeah. As um, council starts to make available more land, we're probably going to see more of that same yeah. situation yeah. happening. Yeah. Do you think there's much legislation change that needs to happen to make it more flexible to allow that?
1: Well, you know, I um, The Queensland legislation is the best in the country. It really really is quite flexible, Um, and provided you describe what you're going to do, um, the law will let you do it. the The problem that you've got is that these projects, often larger projects, often um, take sort of five to ten years to complete. Market conditions change. When the project starts, three-bedroom houses are the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably six years down the track, mm-hmm. one-bedroom apartments mm-hmm. with uh, you know, a shared laundry becomes mm-hmm. the big thing. Yeah. Um, so you've got to change everything in order yeah. to meet the market. Yeah. And then that means that you've got more apartments, you've got higher density, mm-hmm. you've got different types of product. If you're one of the ones that have purchased in the early stages with this vision, and all of a sudden the vision it changes, changes. Um, you've got to be protected as well. Mm. So, you know, introducing flexibility uh, has its challenges because it's got to be flexibility with safeguards. Mm. Yeah. And it's the safeguards that make it too risky for a developer. But you, you, as a government and from mm-hmm. a public policy point of view, You couldn't um, dispose of those safeguards.
2: No, no. it's a fine balance, Mm. very complex balance to strike there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure talking about these complicated matters. Thank you so much for coming on board today.
1: my, My pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. For your fortnightly dose of Strata insights, stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals, and to catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the podcast through letstalkstrata.com.au.